Check, check, check. Can you hear me? How's that sound? Let me hear. Check, check, check. How does that sound? Sexy as sexual, right? (laughs) (laughs) Who'd have thunk? Ryan and Rich back at it. Look at us on the airwaves. Rich Price, stop checking your email. I'm just getting back to our bandmate Greg. Yeah. Well. Okay. All right. I'm here. I'm 100% focused now. Okay. Rich Price, uh, welcome to So the Story Goes. Oh man, I just want to listen to that opening track again because that is a <laughs> that's a hot. That is a vibey vibey track. <laughs> it's, honestly, it's my favorite thing about this podcast. <laughs> Oh, that's not true. But I'm glad that you get to hear it a few times throughout the, throughout the show. You got to sprinkle in. Because that's a real. It's real nice. Oh, you just froze. I don't know. It's off to a bad start. Are you there? Yeah. You froze up on me, homie. I don't like that. I don't know whether that was me freezing. I think it was you freezing up. Cause... Yeah. It said that my internet connection was unstable, much like my mental health. But here, let's see <laughs> if this helps. <laughs> What are they doing over there in Phoenix, I don't know. Arizona? I don't know. I've lied. I stopped asking questions. Um, welcome to the podcast. I'd like Thank to you. start this podcast by early memories of music, mm-hmm. right? So artists or records that you remember that were inspiring as a kid. Yeah. Go. Well, and and for the yeah. listeners, you had a very uh, interesting uh, childhood because you kind of grew up in a variety of different places. So maybe hit that too. Yeah. So I was born in Lagos, Nigeria in the summer of 1976. <laughs> I was the only white baby in the hospital. Um, and so I like to tease my brother and sister that I'm the only one that my parents are absolutely sure about. (laughs) There's no no switching at birth. Um, But then we moved to Abidjan, the Ivory Coast, and then we moved to Taipei in Taiwan and then to Hong Kong. And then most of my or all of my grade school years was spent um, in London. I went to the American School in London. And then we moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, where I went to high school. And then I went to boarding school for a year in in Connecticut. And then I went to college in Middlebury in Vermont. Um, But that's, I gave you my my bio there, but you asked what was my, what are some early memories? I remember one of my early memories flipping through some vinyls of my parents and, and, uh, there was a, a a Beach Boys album that I, I remember listening to and absolutely loving. Um, I remember this is not an early memory, but it's a it's a a pivotal memory in my uh, musical upbringing. I remember really clearly my dad and I both falling in love with Paul Simon's Graceland when I was about ten, and that had a big impact on me and just listening to that, to those songs and, you know, the, the African rhythms against sort of the, 
early American rock and roll grooves and 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 I just I fell in love with Paul Simon there. My mom is English and she my mom's identical twin sister, so my aunt lived in Liverpool. And so and we would spend our summers with them. And so that I attribute my love of the Beatles in part to that as exposure to sort of the lore of, you know, the lads from Liverpool. So you don't necessarily remember music from the various foreign countries that you grew up in. Like I, I was I, just, I yeah, yeah. I was Go trying ahead. to make a connection, you know, because Graceland has such has that kind of African rhythm thing throughout I, I thought, well, is that because you Yeah, that it might be. I, I think on some subconscious level that's probably true. I mean I you know, um, Asian music feels very familiar to me. You know, I, I was probably sort of absorbing that uh, subconsciously, and yeah, I think I think it, as my mother, who was a therapist, would say, it's all multiply determined. It's like you know, mm -hmm. lots of different things, probably. Yes, but please say it in her accent. <laughs> well, it's. I would say it's multiply determined. <laughs> um, and tell me how you got to the guitar and what was that process? Because, well, I won't say anything. I know some yeah. of this stuff, but I, yeah. I, I, you're an incredible storyteller. You're a dear friend of mine. And I've heard a bunch of this before, but I think it's fascinating how and when you got to the guitar because you didn't start as like a kid, right? You, you kind of came to it later quote unquote later in college well i came to it in high school my buddy dave levine was taking guitar lessons and i would sort of i i i like to say i've never had any guitar lessons which is not really true because i would go to dave's house he would had just have had a lesson and i'd be like show me what you learned mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so his parents were paying for my guitar education <laughs> but actually he his teacher uh was a guy named jackie uh blanking on his last name dave sorry if you're listening to this but he was a fascinating guy he was a one of willie nelson's uh guitar players wow uh shoot i can't remember his name anyway um but yeah i, I came to guitar so this is living out. This is living in the San, in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, yeah. And okay. I remember uh, actually my very earliest experiences of writing songs was with Dave, and I remember writing a song and realizing actually that I just the very first song I wrote, I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And then I realized that it was a police song that I had just rewritten. <laughs> <laughs> Do you so that, and, and that only happened to me if you know a hundred more times in my life. Right, but so you know, you, before we get into any further, I mean, I'm 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 psyched wanna, to talk. You want to just stop the podcast now? I or? just want to push pause on. The, no, I want to <laughs> I want to say that that you know, do people know that you and I you and I are in a band together? Like, I, have we have we I, adequately said um, that you know you and I are are bandmates and our uh, band lovers? Band lovers. <laughs> well, I, I'm a, I'm assuming that most people will, but yes, yeah. we're not. You know, we're not. Uh, just buds, uh, yeah. but but we're also colleagues, and and we've been writing songs together for well, 
I do the math, 14, 15 years, something? Yeah, like? 15 years, because Winslow turns 14 in, in next week. Wow. wow. And, we, you know, we'd already been, uh, I mean, yeah, we were working on that album. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I so I started playing guitar. I'm not musically, I don't have a ton of theory background. I would say that I've learned a lot in the last, you know, 20 years uh, just by osmosis and being around people like you and by by being around people like Clint Bierman in particular yeah he's he's got the theory on lock he's he's got it on lock and so i and because i think as you know i use capos a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's forced me to to learn about transposing and you know, if I'm in this key, then I know the relative minor is this, like that has been sort of a backdoor into some music theory for me. Well, and I just want to say two things related to that. And one is you like introduced the capo to me. I had never used one prior to that. And I meet you and you're doing the two capo things. You can drop, you can drop tune any key and you're transposing on the fly. I'm like, what the, what is this like it blew my blew my mind yeah and because of you um i was like oh i should really know how to use a capo you know yeah Um, yeah you are the reason why i learned a capo or or i I bought a capo and started to use it so thank you uh, i don't know if i've ever thanked you for well not only that but now you're on lock with uh, g5 right G seven, G seven, G five. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I uh, I shortchanged them by two. Uh, yeah, G7 which is interesting. Capos, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I was gonna say that I'm not a really, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a competent guitar player and and maybe less competent piano player, but generally like an okay musician. Um. I think you're selling yourself a little short on that, <laughs> but I'm. That's not, I'm. Don't think of myself necessarily as a musician. Oops. Sorry. Please hold. Please. It's my. It's my mother returning my phone call from earlier today. Um. Um. Tell me. Okay. Wait. Yeah. Hold on. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Um. Okay. So now. Okay. So fast forward. So in high school, you're playing. Yeah. Are are absorbing as much as you can. You go to Middlebury yep. College. Yep. And hit me. You are what year is this? Freshman, sophomore year? You have a roommate. See, well, so I had, uh, you know, like I was in a couple different bands that were basically like we'd maybe rehearse one time and then play like a like a party. Okay. Um, and it was all cover stuff, generally speaking. I think maybe we had, I had a couple original songs. But then when I was a junior, I lived with um, Pete Heimbold, who goes by the name Pete Francis. And, and he was in a band then called Dispatch. Actually, um, at that time, they were called One Fell Swoop. Um, and, and, it was really f- fascinating to be around them and to see, you know, them, the chemistry, first of all, that they had and, um, 
and to, to be around Pete when he was really writing a lot of the songs for those early records, it was really exciting. It was exciting to be around. And, and, you know, of course they were huge at Middlebury, but they were also becoming huge in the sort of East coast college scene. And then this is just hit me with the year. This is like 1995, seven, somewhere around there. 97, maybe um, into 98. Um, And then, then when I graduated, I went and did a master's degree at Oxford. Um, And while I was there, right before I'd gone, I'd had my heart broken, something real bad. And I went to this, I was living, when I got to Oxford, I was living in this house that was from the 1600s and it was on cobblestone street. And, you know, it was the English climate, you know, it was damp and dreary and it was just really evocative. And I had this heartache and it would be it's in this place that was so just everywhere I went, it was like inspiring and, and evocative. And, and so I was just very productive and wrote a lot of songs. And so I, th- I think when I was there, I, I wrote Pete a letter and I was like, Hey Pete, I got all these songs. And he's like, Hey, we should go record them. And we should go to Jack Gauthier's place in Rhode Island. And Jack had been the producer for all those dispatch records. And so when I got back from Oxford, we went and tracked, we used the rhythm section that Pete had used for his solo record, um, a, an album called So They Say, uh, two guys named Marty Richards on drums and Marty Ballou on upright. And it was just incredible. It was the first time I'd ever played with like real great musicians. Mm-hmm. And Jack Gauthier has such an incredible vibe that he creates. Like he's, it's, you know, he's, it's an old school studio in the sense that, you know, it's on two inch tape, right. um, all analog, not, you know, not digital. And all of the performances were live. We were tracking live in a room and, and pretty much that whole record uh, of my, my first record we tracked in one day and they're basically all first takes. Wow. With guitar solos, Pete, Pete playing the guitar solos are basically all first takes too. Oh my God. Um, and so I, then I had this thought of like, Oh, you know, I'm, I, I just assumed that I was going to teach or I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but Pete said, Hey, we're going dispatch is going to go on, a, on tour. And, you know, we think it might be the last tour that we do as a band. Um, do you want to come along and and sort of film it for posterity? And so they were in a, a, a tour bus. And so I thought, boy, this is going to be an incredible adventure. So I started filming it and, and maybe a week or less than that into this, you know, months long tour, the plan of, of sort of capturing archival footage turned into, Hey, maybe we should make this a film like a, like a, like a DVD. And so we got a whole bunch of cameras and they had a pretty sophisticated street team. So at every city, there'd be volunteers from their street team who would man the cameras. And we'd have like, 
you know, the places every night, you know, a, a camera behind the drums, uh, you know, stage left camera, stage right camera, a roaming camera in the audience, you know, that type of thing. And in the end, that DVD, uh, that film became uh, under the radar and it's uh, basically a document documentation or, uh, you know, uh, it's not a documentary really, but like a, it captures this band where they were and, and, um, and it, you know, it's, I think it's sold close to a million copies that, that DVD. Um, but it was really, I owe a lot to Pete for having the faith in me and my songs and, you know, saying, Hey, these are good songs. We need to go record them. And then, and then introducing me to that world of, of the mm-hmm. studio, which I, you know, as you know, Brian, mm-hmm. I, that's I just your, love the studio. That's your happy place. That's my happy place. For sure. You have a very interesting guitar playing style. Yeah. And you've told me in the past that, that it was your mother. You, now you're, you're ambidextrous, right? Well, or I'm left. You, you're, you're lefty. I'm left-handed, but <laughs> yeah, as you said, my mom, when I, when it was come time to buy a guitar or really like dig into playing guitar for real, my mom said, you need to get a right-handed guitar um, because you'll want to, you'll be at a party or you'll be at a beach uh, bonfire or something right. and you'll right. want to want to play someone's guitar and you won't be able to if it's left if you have to play a lefty guitar and in retrospect i'm really glad that she did that but it also i think was a challenge for me it was i don't think i'm i'm i was quite as dexterous uh that way um especially with my right hand um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know my left hand which is the hand that's on the frets I think is 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 pretty good. It's my right hand that's not very dexterous, uh, and, or as much as I like. And and your style, which we um, lovingly describe as the claw, the claw, yeah. the claw. Um, you think that that's a result of of that dexterity issue, because you like you don't typically play with a pick, right? And similar to me, I'll use a pick for very uh, in few scenarios. Um, I'm a finger picker as you are, but you have this thing where like you str- like almost strum up, like, t- can you try to break down how you play? Yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't because, you know, I've talked about this with Clint and, and, uh, our buddy Clint Beerman and, and he's like, slow down, like just right. play that slowly. And I'm like, I, c- I can't play it. slowly. I don't know. Yeah. It's like. Will Ferrell in the in the debate in old school. I like I pass out and then I come to him like what just happened? Let me get my guitar and I'll I'll, I'll demo this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's like a there's a there's a pick and a strum happening. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know where that came from. And I don't know. I can't, I can't really explain, uh, you know, what, why I do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's all I know how to do. Right, right, right. 
So the story goes is brought to you by the Engstrom team, my dear friends Becky Carey and Kate. This is the mother-daughter real estate team with Coldwell Banker Realty. They've been selling in the Phoenix metro area for 25 years, and they know the market well. Are you a first-time homebuyer? Need some more space for the family? Do you have questions on if this is the right time to sell? You should call these gals, and they will walk you through the whole real estate process. They have all the connections to get your home ready for sale and excellent resources for the loan process. These ladies truly treat their clients like family. I should know. They helped me buy my first house, which is now, so the story goes, HQ. The market is crazy right now, and you need a team who is looking out for you. Contact them at 480-250-1936. All right, so you do this. You you go on tour with Dispatch. Yeah. And at that moment, is this is this pre-Napster? Or do you... It's, it's right around the time of Napster. Okay. Okay. It's right around the time of Napster. You know, so th- as as you said, Napster plays a big part in the Dispatch story because mm-hmm. their song "The General" was a song that really found its audience because of Napster. People mm-hmm. were sharing that song. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Sean Fanning and the Napster people were testifying in front of Congress, Dispatch actually was invited to speak in favor of- On behalf of, yeah. (laughs) Of what sort of a a democratizing force Napster was outside of sort of the traditional, you know, record industry, uh, radio, uh, you know, racket. Right, right. And, And so after that, after that experience, you you have a record. You are early twenties, or you know, and tell me the story about how you get signed originally. Yeah, so it's all pretty hazy in my head. You know, like I'm, I'm. <laughs> you were doing a lot of drugs back then. I was doing. Like, no, I. It's it's interesting. I, I'll just take a, a quick tangent on this idea of memory, because my brother and I both have pretty hazy memories of our childhood, which is not, you know, like, you know, we had very happy childhood, but there are gaps in our memory. Like my wife remembers her like second grade teacher's name. Like I, I could not tell you my second grade teacher's name. Um, Mine was Miss Manajak. Miss Manajak. See, there you go. And, you know, again, back to my therapist mother, her theory in all of this is that, you know, memories are often rooted to our sense of place. Mm -hmm. And because we had this peripatetic, you know, moving around so much upbringing, Mm -hmm. there was nothing to really anchor uh, Mm -hmm. our memories to. Um, So I, anyway, that all is to say that I went out on tour opening for Pete. Um, and I remember we had a show nine, like 2000, September 11th, 2001. And uh, of course that show was canceled. And then, and then it was, you know, four or five days until the tour resumed. 
And then it was sometime on that tour, I think, that we played a show at Harper's Ferry in Boston. Yeah. And some guy came up to me. And at that time, I don't think I even had my full album. I think I just had like a three song EP that had um, a song Empty Glass and a song called wow. Ain't No Lights. And then I think the third song on that EP was uh, She Knows, which was a song in 6 8 that ultimately was on that first record. Anyway, and this guy came up to me and, and was like, hey, really loved your set. Can I, can I get your CD? I'm like, I just have this EP. And I, I gave it to him. And I guess I must have given him my phone number because a couple days later, I get a call. He's like, hey, Rich, it's, it's Dave. I met you at Harper's Ferry. I'm out in LA. And I'm, I'm with my dad. And my dad absolutely loves this. And I'm like, oh, that's really, that's really nice. You know, a friend that's- of mine's mom uh, said she liked it too. It feels like maybe it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, has wide a broad appeal or whatever. He's like, no, no, Rich, my dad is the president of RCA Records. Jesus. And and that really changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways because, you know, at that point I was just thinking, I was just just sort of having fun with it. I, I had I don't think I had any serious serious ambitions about doing this as a for a living. And 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 so then Bob Jameson, who was the the dad, who was the president of RCA Records, he Jesus um, assigned me an R uh, uh, an A and R guy, you know. And so, for people who are listening, you don't know A and R people are. It stands for artists and repertoire, and they're the people at record labels that are sort of assigned to talent and uh, sort of guide the artists through the label experience, and and so. The AR guy that I was assigned to was a guy named Steve Ferreira. And RCA had just acquired the rights uh, of all the artists, participants on a new show called American Idol. And so Steve Ferreira also had all those people. And so you remember, like, the first, I think the first season it was like kelly clarkson yeah kelly clarkson and clay aiken and and Mm -hmm. like that that crowd um so steve ferreira put me in touch with well no yeah i'm i'm yeah the story is a little sideways but he he was the one who said hey i want to put you in touch with uh, this producer who um who's going to work with you his name's andy zula and that started, you know, that was over 20 years or 20 Jeez. years ago now. And Andy is still an important figure in my life and, you know, yeah. has produced the Sweet Remains music and has played a big role in our band's yeah. uh, history. And, and just an assassin. I mean, the level, his, just his level of awareness and... You know, if you think about it, if you know he was producing Kelly Clarkson, yeah, and can produce us and yeah. give and give both the treatment that they need, right? That's a level of understanding of music that is bananas. Yeah, well, and I think you know, no disrespect to Kelly Clarkson and some of the other sort of pop acts that he's produced, but I think Andy's love is the type of music that we play and and you know he loves the like vibey 
airy analogy sound uh of of you know the era of singer songwriters and that that's what he loves but yeah you're right i mean he's he has you know grammy winning you know his the wall in his studio of of platinum uh and gold records is astounding and yeah he you know he mixed and produced um the rod stewart um American Songbook albums, which wow. was, you know, late in Rod Stewart's career, he did a bunch of, you know, these standards. And those sold more records than all of the Rod Stewart and Faces mm. albums combined. Oh my God. Just incredibly successful. Yeah. But yeah, Andy's, Andy's, you know, and I don't use this word lightly. Andy's a genius. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like he's a sonic yeah. genius. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So you sign you signed to RCA. Yep. So we signed to RCA. We we cut a um a demo that included a song called Um I'm on my way, which is a song that I had written with um Clint mm-hmm. New Year's Eve like 2000 or 2001 or whatever. I I forgot now. Um and it's really a cool sounding tune uh the way andy produced it and he he had the drums like some of the drums played through like baby monitors Mm. and and so there's like a a really lo-fi cool compressed drum Mm. sound on that on that track that is from that um and the and the the musicians that he had on a play on that uh were some of the you know the best new york session guys um hmm. uh conrad korsh on bass who has toured with everybody um and joey bonadio mm-hmm. on we, drums yeah. we and joe joe. joe's played on some sweet <clears throat> remain stuff yeah and of course for years joe was martin sexton's drummer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he saw, so, we saw him with mark Cohn. Right, remember that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, in, in we when opened, we opened for Marcone in Hartford, in Hartford at the Infinity Hall in right, Hartford. Right, yeah, right, right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how you would boil down that experience of being signed. And I, you know, you've shared with me a thousand stories. Um, I, I okay, hold on. I want you to tell. Well, first of all, okay, sorry. So you're signed to RCA. Yeah. You put the record together. You go on tour, and you and you become kind of like you do some headlining stuff, but you also do a lot of opening slots for. No, not there yet. Oh, not, not there yet. Not there yet. I then get a call that RCA and J Records mm. are merging, and um, they're only. Basically, and and Bob Jameson was was leaving RCA, and basically all of his pet projects, and I was considered one of his pet projects, mm-hmm. w- were being dropped. And so I had this demo that, and I and I had signed to a booking agent who was starting to get, and everything that was starting to ramp up. All of a sudden, was like, it's was it's that, over. Was that the was that the call? You were like on your way to a, a radio interview. 
No, that's that's the next time I got dropped. Jeez, Louise. Um, <laughs> Wait, and Kim, before before you continue, yeah. put a button on "I'm on my way" because that song would go on to get on the Shrek. Yeah, two. but that's again later. Oh gosh! All right, so, so you're, you're getting ahead of it. I know, but by this time I was signed I'm to William. So I was signed to William Morris. They were my booking agent, and. This guy, my booking agent at William Morris, gave my RCA demo to someone named Jen Littleton, who was <laughs> who was a newly appointed A and R person at Geffen Records, mm. and she was looking for a singer songwriter. Geffen wanted a singer songwriter in part, and this was sort of all around the time that like Ray LaMontagne had just had a big thing. Um, so early two thousands, John Mayer was, you know, room for yeah. room for squares was yeah. Early two thousand David gray. Mm -hmm. And so like every record label was interested in having their singer songwriter. So I think she put the word out to people that she knew. And one of them was this guy, um, who was my booking agent at William Morris. And so he gave her my demo and she started talking to me said i really love this i want to fly you out um to meet the president of our of, of geffen records um and so they they flew me out and i remember I, I got um picked up at the airport and they took me to the rental car place and it was one of these off uh terminal mm -hmm. but it but of like high-end rental cars and they're like, I've been told to tell you to, you know, you can choose any of these cars for your, for your rental car. And I thought it was like a test, mm. like, well, let's see what kind of guy he is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at the lot and there's a Porsche and there's a BMW. And, and I remember I picked the Lincoln town car. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember thinking Oh yeah, there's this going to be the test and they're going to be, you know, right. like oh, you know, this guy's this guy's serious. He's a, he's a, you know, he's workmanlike. He's he's not interested classic, in classic. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. And I remember <laughs> at one point someone being like, "Why'd you choose this car?" <laughs> anyway, so we I go to I go to their offices there on uh I think it's the Santa Monica Boulevard or or Olympic Boulevard maybe. Uh in uh in Santa Monica. And I, I walk into Jordan, uh, fuck, I'm blanking on his name. This is a guy at, uh, at Geffen. Yeah. Yeah. The president of RCA or Geffen records. He's the president of Geffen. Um, and I sit down, he's wearing like a, uh, like a velour tracksuit. <laughs> And he's also in the Russian mob. Yeah, he's like yeah, <laughs> part time in the right, Russian right, mob. Right, right, um, And he's like, I remember, I'll never forget. It. I sit down on the couch facing the couch that he was sitting in. And he's like, he's like, Rich, I didn't fly out here to meet you. I flew you out here to sign you. <laughs> Come on, and you, you the and uh, and then he's like, he's like. Have you ever met Jimmy Ivy? I'm like, no, I, ha I haven't. He's like, come on, let's go. So we start walking these corridors because Geffen was part of Universal, which you know also had A and M, and and um, and so we walk into Jimmy Ivy's office, 
And here's this guy who, you know, he produced Born to Run, and he produced Damn the Torpedoes, and you know, he's just a legend. Yeah. And um, and he's like, hey, I, you know, I heard you're 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 a great songwriter. We're excited to have you part of the family. And and you know, we're working on the new Gwen Stefani album, and and she needs some songs. So uh, you know, you think uh, you think you can do some writing for Gwen? And I'm like, yeah, I I, I of course I'd love to do that. And anyway, this became one of, you know, the first of many uh, hyperbolic promises that never came to fruition. Right. 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 And uh, I guess by the time I sat down with, with Jordan, I had like a list of songs that I was going to, to do. And I'm on my way. Wasn't one of those songs. Hmm. And he's like, He's like, I'm surprised that I'm on my way isn't on this list. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I like that song. I just have a bunch, you know, a bunch of songs that I'm, I'm really excited about. And he's like, look, Rich, I'm a song scientist. And uh, I, you just have to trust me. I've studied this. And that song is a hit. And wow. so so getting back to your, your question about I'm on my way, ultimately, was, we, de- we decided. wrong, to- you know? Yeah, we ultimately we decided to put that song on, and uh, as you said, it was part of the Shrek Two soundtrack. Which, which you know, that film came out on DreamWorks, but the album, the the soundtrack came out on Geff on Geffen Records, and it was an incredible uh, collection of artists. Uh, you know, obviously, Counting Crows had that big hit mm-hmm. with "Accidentally in Love," but. But Beck was on there, and and David Bowie was on there, wow. and and wow. I want to say Peter Gabriel was on there. I mean, it was I'm blanking now, but it was a it was a pretty cool thing to be a part of it. So the story goes. Is sponsored by Santan Brewing Company. Come on, they got some tasty craft beers. One of my favorites is Moon Juice. I always got a sixer. Tasty, tasty moon juice. I call that an emergency sixer. Anyway, what am I talking about? I want to tell you about Santan Gardens. It's a new live music venue. It's located at 495 East Warner Road in Chandler, Arizona. Santan Gardens is going to be, is gonna, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be an entertainment oasis, oasis, oasis. And they have some awesome events coming up that I want to tell you about. One, it's on the calendar. Come on, April 30th this month, y'all. Beer, bourbon, barbecue. Okay, this is a monthly event showcasing a local band. And guess who's playing on April 30th? Don't say it. Say it. Don't say it. JTM3, dear friends. Go to santanbrewing.com forward slash events for more information. Let's see. I got dropped. So I went on tour. They gave me... Part of what they, they you know, they're like, we're going to put your album out in the fall, but we want you to go and we want you to spend the next six to nine months touring, just playing like crazy. And we're going to give you some tour support, uh, some money basically every month to cover the expense of, of touring. And, and so I put together a five piece band mm-hmm. and it was called Rich Price and the Foundation. And it was Jeff Simons on bass, and uh, we brought uh, a drum 
Murr that he and I had known from the San Francisco days, basically out of retirement, back into drumming. A guy named Adam Weissman, who uh, we've you and yeah, I have had a chance with. to pl- play with since then. And the guitarist was a guy named Andrew Doolittle, and we wanted a we wanted a, a keyboard player. And Andrew knew this guy in LA named Joe DeVoe. And so that Joe rounded out the five piece. Hmm. And so we went on tour and we were in a van and trailer and we had a tour manager and we had a sound guy and, uh, it was, I, it was like the game halo had just come out. And so we had in the van, it was like a 15 seater van. We had a screen in the front row the first bench of seats. And then we had a screen in like the third row and you could play. Oh my God. You, you know, right. you sit in the third row and play the guy in the first row. Oh my God. Um, and I'm, I'll never forget Jeff, our bass player had this thing called an iPod. <laughs> and we we're like, what is this? He's like, this is incredible guys. I get have my entire music collection on this one thing. <laughs> And it was like half a gig. It was like half a megabyte. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then, so we went out on the road and we played, as you said, we, we did a lot of opening. We opened up for, uh, you know, a lot of different bands. And, and um, I'll never forget, we, we opened up for this guy named Joe Firstman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were playing actually in, at, uh, nectars in burlington long i I live in burlington now but this was many years before i I ever moved to burlington and because i'd gone to college in in vermont i knew a bunch of people in this town and so they Mm -hmm. came out to see me play and so we didn't pack the room by any measure but like there was a decent crowd to see me and then when when the opening when we as the openers finished everyone sort of went back to the bar and we all were having drinks. And so left the entire floor empty. There was no, and I'll never forget at one point between songs, he's like, I don't know what happened, man. I'm way more famous than this. (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) Because he was like, really? He was, he was flabbergasted. And, and on that tour, like we would, we would, go wherever we were, we were whichever city we were playing we'd go perform at the local AAA state radio station mm-hmm. and i remember driving into like minneapolis and we were literally oh let's listen to the, the radio station we're going to be on so we we were tuned into that station and joe firstman was being interviewed and uh they asked him like oh you know, so we're, later on we're going to have rich price uh, and his band in the studio um understand he's been opening for you on this tour and and it was like joe firstman had no idea who i was <laughs> and this was like 18 shows into the tour <laughs> uh but, famous but to remember you but it, we're, we still laugh about the fact that it, like having seen that and seen the like the template that is mm. radio and like mm. the morning show in particular it's like you know they all are like I'm hot. I'm crazy, Mike. And this is my partner, the big bear. <laughs> crazy Mike. For whatever. 
so oh then God. so then we I have to mention this part. We at one point in the tour we played at Georgetown University and there's a girl that I had met in at a wedding the previous so this was in April. There's a girl I had met in a, at a wedding out in California the previous October. So now flash forward, you know, six months. Mm-hmm. And as we're pulling into Georgetown, I'm like, oh, you know what? I met this girl at this wedding. And I think she lives in DC. And so I call her and leave a message on her answer machine. That's Mm -hmm. how old school it was. Yeah. And saying like, Hey, we're playing. I'm really sorry for the last minute notice, but we're, we're playing at Georgetown tonight. If you'd like to come, I'll put your name on the guest list and, and just, you know, it'd be great to see you anyway. So she did, she showed up and she, the show ends. So she's, sort of hanging around and and we're talking and then after a while she's like okay well i I guess i'm gonna go and i'm like okay well it's really great to see you so she walks away and my tour manager russell looks at me he's like man you he's from franklin tennessee he's like you're crazy man that girl's really into you (laughs) (laughs) you gotta call her right now and so I'm like, I know, but you know, I live in New York City and she lives in DC. And I, right. I just he's like, you, You're crazy, man. So <laughs> I I sure enough, I called her and I'm I reached her and she hadn't left. She was still in the parking lot. And I'm like, I have to go, I have to fly tomorrow to England. And I'm I've I got a room at a hotel uh near the airport. Is it out of your way to give me a ride to the airport? And she's like, no, not at all. And now, you know, since learned that it is like an hour out of her way to give me a ride to this airport. No kidding. But she gave me a ride. And on the way, we were on 66 going and she gets a flat tire and she pulls over to the side of the highway. And and she looks at me like, like, I'm going to fix her, her tire. (laughs) And I'm like. Look, I could write a song about this, right? But I, I don't even know where, like, where to start on this whole like tire changing situation. <laughs> and anyway, by the time the tow truck came, I would say I was in love. Yeah. And uh, and then, so that's that's now my wife, who you know really well, and who yeah. loves loves love, you, love Kimberly. But that was the start of the whole Rich wow. and Kimberly story. Damn. And then, so I kept touring uh, throughout that year. And then in August, we were playing on the morning show of KFOG, which is the AAA station in San Francisco. Yeah, And it, that was a really exciting moment for me because they'd been playing uh, a song uh, off the record called Queen Bee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. had included in their... Um, I forget what they called the live, like the local archives, or I forget what the what the name of the collection was. But it was a it was a pretty big deal for me personally because I'd grown up listening to this rec- this radio station, and then here I was playing on this on the morning show. We were playing the song, and then and it'd been you know I kept getting calls from people I knew saying, "Hey, I heard your song on the radio today," and and that was a really exciting thing. Mm-hmm. And and so I I drove home from that feeling really really pretty excited like things were moving in the right direction and i get a call from my manager at the time steve bursky and steve said hey rich are you sitting down mm-hmm. great 
And I'm like, uh, yeah, why? He's like, Geffen has decided that they're going to drop you. Um, they, uh, oh, I remember now. His, his, I've blanked on, on the guy's name. His, his name was Jordan Schur. Jordan Schur was leaving Geffen. Uh, someone named Polly Anthony was coming on, and they were only keeping one release for that fall. Right, and right, and it was it was Ashley Simpson. Right, it was that the way you used to say it is that you know they were deciding between you or Ashley Simpson. Yes, they had a, they had a choice, and they're like, what? Do you, maybe Jordan got to choose one of the of the two releases, and they chose Ashley Simpson. And I have to say, like I. I from a business decision, it was probably a fairly easy decision. You know, like Ashley Simpson was the younger sister of Jessica Simpson, who was pretty big at the time. This, of yeah, course, she, was this was before some... she did that SNL. You remember the sure. SNL thing? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Do a jig, dance a jig. Do a jig. <laughs> what shit is the fan? Dance a jig and blame your band. <laughs> so then, Kimberly and I got engaged. That. We got engaged. So that was, you know, she and I, the Georgetown show was in April and she and I got engaged in December. So it was a holy a, shit. A pretty, I didn't, pretty quick courtship. Like, that was quick. And then, uh, and then I was like, shit, what am I going to do now? And my lawyer, I had a pretty good lawyer who <laughs> was like, look, they signed you to a two record deal. So they're breaking their contract here. Mm, so mm. you have, so you, I've negotiated the option. They'll either give you your album and, and all the money that they've spent on tour support and marketing and, you know, everything else will be forgiven and mm -hmm. you'll own the recordings of, of your album or you'll, or a hundred thousand dollars. Hmm. Hmm. And at the time, I thought, well, this is a pretty good record. And I, I think I want this record. Like the, wow. these, are, these songs mean a lot to me. So I chose the record. Wow. You bet on yourself. And I'm, I, you know, I've, I've had this sort of thought experiment uh, throughout the years. Like, was that the right call? And I think it probably was the right call. Um, Wow. But it was an interesting early first decision of like, right. You know, like, is, is this the end of my career? If it is, I should take the money. Yeah. And if wow. it's not, I should take the album. Wow. What a crazy crossroad. Yeah. You know, yeah. talk about those moments in your life where you're like, I could do this or I could do this. And you can go back and look at them and say, wow had I gone the other direction, my life right now would be very, very different. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. And, you know, that whole experience, you know, first of all, I've, I've had the incredible privilege and good fortune, frankly, to have been signed twice to record labels, to RCA and to Geffen. And I, and I, I was just talking about it today with Clint, actually. I've thought a lot about the fact that I was so unformed as an artist, as a, as a songwriter, as someone who wasn't quite sure about what it was that I did best. Mm. And I don't think 
and this is not to say that this is why I got dropped. I think I got dropped for reasons outside of my control, but mm-hmm. I have thought very often about the fact that in some ways, if I had that opportunity now as the musician, as a songwriter that I am now, that I have a very clear sense of what I was put on this earth to do. And I, I and I, I certainly didn't have that back then. And, and, and I don't, as much as I loved having that five piece band, I don't think it was the best format for me as a, you know, you know, me as well mm-hmm. as anyone. Right. But I was basically looking at, you know, Bruce Springsteen and the E street band and right. Tom Petty Tom and the Petty. heartbreakers, right. you know, uh, these, these front men songwriters who had bands that could really rock. Right. And I love to rock out. I love to do that, but it wasn't really what, I was supposed to be doing. And I remember very clearly Andy Zula Mm -hmm. saying at the time, he's like, I think you should go out with a, with like a, a percussionist and an upright bass player. Mm -hmm. He's like, that's what you should do. That's, that's. And, you know, I've, I, I tell him all the time, like I've never known him to be wrong in retrospect. (laughs) Right. Right. Like I disagree with him, but I've never known him to be wrong. (laughs) Right, it, right in the end right in the final analysis and i think he was totally right and i so it was it was not until i became a band member with you and with greg that i felt like i was doing the, the thing that i should be doing when the world slows Walked into the woods and followed the brook Well, we gathered up some leaves of the cottonwood trees The heart-shaped ones we keep inside a book When the world slowed down just for a while I played my guitar while you watched TV Ventured out as far as the edge of the yard Like sailors on a ship stuck out at sea Hey, what can I say? You're my favorite part of the day Another question that I like to ask creatives mm-hmm. is how um, how the pandemic affected your creativity. How did it? What what did it? Maybe did it change the process at all? Um, obviously, you, you we couldn't perform live at that time. Um, and as a as a friend looking in, I you are one of the most prolific songwriters that I know. Like you'll write it, like we'll go on tour, you'll write a song before breakfast. And I love that about you. <laughs> um, and you know, 
eventually we will segue into when the world slowed down because yeah. that was obviously a pandemic project about the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I love that song. So um, maybe just touch on how the pandemic uh, affected the process or, or your creativity, you know? Yeah. You know, for me, I write in spurts and I write when there's an instrument around me, I like to write. And you know, like when we're on tour, like you, you're trying to like, tell get me to stop playing and or because you're taking a nap or something like that. And I'm like, I know, but I got this idea. <laughs> You know, I was like, come into the room and record a harmony. I'm like, no, yeah. man, I yeah. want to take a nap. <laughs> so I write in spurts. And so one of the things the pandemic did, of course, for all of us, is that we were sort of, um, well, as the song says, we, the world slowed down. And, and, we, and what that meant for me is that I was inside and I was sitting next to my guitars and, and, it was a, you know, my, when my wife gets stressed, she likes to clean. Mm-hmm. And when I get stressed, I like to play guitar. And so for me, it was very, means you, ther- have, you, have, you have, means you have very clean guitars. <laughs> I have, we have very clean guitars. <laughs> but I found it very therapeutic and um, yeah, I did. I wrote a lot and, you know, I, I I really love the songs that came out of that this time. Yeah. Um, and I I like when the world slowed down in particular because it's just a it's just a very honest song. And you know, what you and I both enjoy about songs, whether they're ones that we wrote or songs that we like listening to, is when a when you can hit on something that feels universal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't get much more universal than, you know, an experience that everyone sh- went through together. But one thing, I mean, I think that that, that song it, it is so well crafted, right? It, and that's what you do. Like you, you're, you craft songs, right? Um, what, you know, unlike some other songs that were written, say, during that time or about that experience, is that those songs songs can tend to be too specific and dwell on the aspects that no one wants to remember, right? Mm-hmm. No one, like, if you're too specific about it, it's like, I don't want to remember the fact that that we couldn't see our friends or we had to do this or we had to quarantine. Like, I don't want to remember that. Right. But what that, that, that song is universal in a sense that it's touching on an emotion, but it's not like putting a finger on, on a nerve that, that really, honestly, we just want to forget, you know, right. Um, that song is very evocative without being, you know, it's very evocative about a certain thing without being too specific, which I love. Right. And I will sing that song with you until the end of days, because it touches on the, the, the better bits of that experience. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I think there are songs that, you know, we all write that 
someone, you know, you always love the last song you wrote, you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of a universal truth for songwriting, right. but then there are songs that stick with you and you think, you know, that, that one came out better than I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And when the world slowed down came out and it was really, I mean, I, it, I, you're right. I, it is crafted, but I, it also came pretty easily. You know, like this, mm. there's a lyric, you know, we ventured out as far as the edge of the yard, like sailors on a ship stuck out at sea. And that, and those it, are some of my fit. Those are, that, that's like one of my favorite lines of the, of the thing. How did, it, but you, it, it really did feel that way. Just yeah. like we were all like on our own ship. Right. You know, right. and like, yeah. And it's interesting, like, you know, I, I you know I, I I I have joking jokingly said in the past that I'm the member of the Sweet Remains that gets to write about heartbreak and breakups and broken mm-hmm. hearts and bicycles in the night and you know mm-hmm. I get to do all the strange shit where you guys get you know you and Greg and you're very good at it writing you know love songs or or not even always love songs but you're just you know you guys you guys are the meat and potatoes and I'm the I'm the the strange salad on the side or whatever. <laughs> um, where was I going with this? Oh, Jesus. Um, oh, I say that because unlike say a breakup song where it, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're touching on something personal that was, it was a hard moment in your life and you're faced with these emotional, um, emotionally challenging moments. Unlike, like I can sing those all day because there's some sort of disconnect, you know, at some point over time, the, that raw emotion, the, the place that you were in when you wrote it is kind of gone, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you've improved, you're in a new relationship, everything's great. Um, and I don't know. I just, I look forward to playing that song in the future. It's almost like I want to, I want to remember I want to, it's almost like I want to touch that nerve a little bit, but know that we're distanced from it, you know? And so I think that that's something that I'm looking forward to just, it's like, remember, remember that pandemic shit, man, that was, that was fucking crazy. Let's sing that song, you know? Well, and I think, you know, a lot of conversations that I had, I'm sure you had too, Brian, with people like, what are the things that you want to take from this period? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what's the silver lining or what's yeah, the what, silver lining? Yeah. And that song to me is very much about the silver lining about right. like, right. You know, I want to slow down and, you know, pour a glass of wine, right. You know, and, and play my guitar while you watch TV. Like, right. These are things that I want to, that I hope last out, you know, once we move beyond this pandemic and, and such beautiful, snapshots right they're they're just these very kind of like you know relatively mundane but beautiful polaroids of some of those moments Mm, i appreciate that i'm i'm writing a song right now bright that i told i mentioned i was i um i'm like obsessed currently obsessed in part because it's like a puzzle i'm trying to like figure out the key of open g yeah because it's you know it's obviously like you can't make the same chord right uh you know um well the chord forms are different forms that's the and, forms is the and the voicings are going to be super cool because you have that nice open ringy stuff that you can do and and these interesting clusters of notes that you can do yeah but there's a but 
I've got I've got the bridge. I've written the bridge. I can't write the the verse, and it's driving me crazy. Interesting, because, because I like the guitar part, and I like, but I I I really need you on this one. All right, I'm in. And bro. but I'm the, ready to get the juices flowing again, homie. I it, we need to get the ju- juices flowing again because there's I I get to be in a band with two of my favorite songwriters. And that is such an incredible privilege. I mean, the first time I ever heard your songs was on MySpace. And it was a song called Better Ways to Spend the Day. And I remember hearing that song and be like, holy crap, that's a great song. Thanks, man. And, you know, you and I have had, it. it's a, it's a real... Um, it's a real gift to me that you and I are able to write songs together because it's, no. it's not a, it's not a given. It's not an easy right. thing to do necessarily with someone else, but like a song like Howling Wolf, oh. you know, you and I wrote in the basement of this house. Yeah. Basically taking line by line. And yeah. that's, that's a song that, you know, I, I hope we get to play for the next 50 years. And I will say that, you know, I, I love I love so much of what we do for for a num for a bunch of the same reasons. I think that that you love it that that sheer the sheer collaboration with two other songwriters that you really respect and love and trust. Right? I, I've yeah, yeah. talked about it with other songwriters. It's like you can't co-write with someone that you don't trust, right. and if they don't trust you, you're you're kind of you're not going to write a song that has any like emotional value to it. Yeah. Howling Wolf is one of those songs that literally when we perform it, I I'll choke up. Like yeah. there are moments where I think my voice is going to go because I need a I need a fucking minute, you know. Yeah. I don't know what it that that song for my money It's um, such vibe. It's just a vibey and super evocative and evocative. I'm not even really sure what it's about at this point, yeah, but I know. it just again, these snapshots that that just crushed me and i don't i'm like i was a part of this session i barely remember writing that song yeah. i remember being in the basement studio and we're going back and forth and i remember you had the thing you said we'll check this out i was like oh okay hey all right well let's go here and let's try yep. this and, and i had that line about the the moon sat like a peach and, and it fits i mean it just fits right i love in. that line the moon sat like a peach on the horizon that's a great yeah. lyric and it's fun to sing it's and it's yeah you know, just, that's yeah 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 when you're as a songwriter when you can write a phrase that's a that's a compelling image but the, but also the words are like have a right. percuss, percussiveness to them or like yeah. there's a there's a musicality about the words themselves that's that's like a double win and right. that for me the moon sat like a peach on the horizon is one of those phrases yeah. And I, yeah. And I remember I told it to a buddy, you know, back when I had written it, he's like, Hey man, what are you up to? I'm like, I don't know, man, I got this line. I'm, tr- I'm trying to put a song around it. This is like years and years and years ago. Um, and he's like, yeah, I just don't get it. I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I'm going to hold on to it. <laughs> well, that guy can go to hell. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Um, no, but but so the song that I'm writing in, in Open G, I, it's the it's that kind of like snapshot Polaroids of mm-hmm, a moment, mm-hmm. and one of and I you you'll appreciate this I think Sunday morning, 
read the papers while you're sleeping, coffee creamer, alabaster skies, on rotation, Brothers Landreth, Vulture Choir. Come on, boys, and sing it to me line by line. Oh, come <laughs> and, on. Shout and, out to the Brothers Landreth. Shout out to the Brothers Landreth, who you turn me on to. You're like, hey, Richard, you got you to hear this song. And we we were on tour, and you you put it on uh, Spotify on the car, and it just blew my mind. Yeah, it, yeah. So, and and you've done that. You've you've been the source of some new obsessions for me in the past couple of years because I got that way with Lucas Nelson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You played. You're like Rich. You gotta hear this this guy Lucas Nelson, "The Promise of the Real," and yeah, and that record uh, is so good. <laughs> so that good. record is so good. Yeah. And I and I and I have to give credit where credit is due because I think both of those artists came from my friends uh Chad Gregory and Kyle Phelan. And um yeah, if it weren't for them, I'd 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 be horribly I'd be horribly lonely. Well um, guys, thank you for and keep keep uh yes, keep giving, us in the loop. <laughs> keep giving Brian and me some new music to listen to. But if if you haven't listened to Brothers Landreth, yeah, do it now. Well, after the podcast. Yeah. I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit, it's a 501c3, founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is going to be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. Tell me about one of my new podcast obsessions, The Age Old Question, and how that came about. And uh, and it's you and our dear friend Clint Bierman, and um, you guys um, try to answer one of these age-old questions, and that's, you know, uh, well, I'll let you describe it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny because you and I were interested in podcasts early on, and you and I started, we tried to do a podcast in like 2012. Do you remember this? We did. We, we uh, what did you, we me, do? and Greg were sitting around and we're like, hey, you know, we should do a this thing called a podcast. <laughs> Spell that for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the first, I, I remember we recorded it and I edited it together and, and then we just didn't, it was too, we were too early on that. <laughs> okay. We were, too, uh, we were ahead of the curve. <laughs> we were too ahead of the curve, but uh, you know, it's interesting that you and I both have, have found as an outlet for our creativity, uh, this format of, of a podcast. Um, Clint and I, early in the pandemic, 
we're talking, you know, he and I have known each other since we were in college and we would often find ourselves at parties having conversations about, you know, who is the greatest guitar player of all time? Or if you could only take five albums to a desert island, what would they be? And often laughing hysterically having these and and so we're like you know we should we should put this as a show like we should do this as a show and and so the show is called the age-old question each episode as you said is a different long simmering debate or question in music fandom and we just had such a blast we've done 38 shows and the next episode is would you rather be Elton John or Bernie Taupin? Right. And you're a frequent guest on the show, by the way. Um, honored. And this, it's a fun episode. I'm, I'm excited for people to hear it because, you know, of course, the I asked ask my wife, I'm like, Kimberly, would you rather be Elton or Bernie? And she thought I was talking about Bernie Sanders. <laughs> She was really, really confused about why I was putting those two particular people <laughs> together in a in yeah, yeah, either yeah. or. Right, right. Like, ah, Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so no, Bernie Taupin, of course, is the guy who wrote all the lyrics for Ber- for El- for Bernie Sanders for Elton John. Um, and he's a it's speech a, writer. He's, he's a speech, speech writer. writer for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's an interesting question about, right. Would you rather be the guy on stage uh, mm-hmm. or would you rather be creatively busy, but anonymous? Right. Well, and, and as you told me, that wasn't, that wasn't always the angle that people were like, you make a point to reach out to a couple of different people yeah. about the topic, but that wasn't necessarily how people were responded or replied they they took another angle on it so yeah so like, yeah. our bandmate greg responded in a way that i was that sort of took me by surprise a little bit he's like well i'd rather you know if you're asking who's the bigger genius it's elton john and that's not the question i was asking but it was interesting that for him you know would you rather be if you would you rather be the the genius uh melody writer or like the talented lyricist and for him the reason those songs are classics the reason those songs are masterpieces is less much less about the lyrics and much more about what elton was able to do to those lyrics i i would i guess i would kind of agree you know I yeah mean, it's but not like crocodile rock is gonna hit you on an emotional level you know yeah totally and you know the 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 real answer is it's probably those songs don't exist without those lyrics sparking something in elton that created a vibe or a mood or a, a you know a rhythm in his own mind that gave us rocket man or gave right. us like you know border song or candle in the wind that right right but you know, we talk on the episode too about Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia as as an, another example of right. a lyricist and a song and a and a, a melody writer, who, right? And, and similarly, most often Jerry was writing two sheets of lyrics of Robert Hunter's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and one of who the reasons. Was- and Robert, yeah, mm-hmm. no, no, go ahead. 
I, I was going to say, and Robert Hunter also wrote for and with Bob Bobby Weir, but whereas Jerry played, he wrote the music to, the, he never changed the words. Mm. Bobby was interested in changing the words or like taking a couple lines from verse one and putting it on, you know, the, the other, you know, two lines from verse three. And, and ultimately that was not okay with Robert Hunter. And so he pawned him off to John Barlow. That's what I, that's, that was my question. I, I knew that there was another writer that worked with Bob Weir and okay. It was Barlow. Um, well, brother, I could talk to you for days and days and days. Um, I, well, I just want to say I'm so grateful to be on this podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And, and I feel like I've gotten to know this crew of musicians out in Phoenix who just, it seems like such an incredible community of musicians and, and people. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, of course I, I wish we live closer, but I'm, I'm glad that you live in a place that has so many cool cats. I, and I, this comes up every, every podcast. Um, but the, the musical community out here is just incredible. Um, so obviously extremely talented musicians, but just dear friends. And I, and unlike in some of the other areas where I have spent time, um, we're all, we all have this great love for each other. And part of the reason for this podcast is to kind of celebrate um, that musical community. Um, but I've been looking forward to, to bringing you into the mix. And um, because, you know, not only are we in a band together, but you have worked with some of the guys out here. Um, yeah. And um, I, 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 like I said, I could, I could talk to you for another 14 hours, but you have, a thousand children um, to take care of. Um, but I did want to ask you to just send us out with a joke. <laughs> All right. I'll send you out with a joke. This is a joke that my son, William told me yesterday. Okay. If quizzes are quizzical, what are tests? Oh God. <laughs> That's Rich Price, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> hey, uh, will you have me back on the show? I'd love to be back. Come on. We need a part two. I mean, and, what are we doing? And, and when are we going to do some more songwriting? When are we hanging? Well, uh, this summer we'll write some songs. This summer, I'm looking forward to getting the band back together. It's been a long two years. Yeah, we're playing in Phoenix in playing March. in Phoenix. I'm, sorry, in Whoa. June. In June, we're doing two shows at the MIM, which is like my home away from home. Beautiful venue. Beautiful venue. On June 10th, we're doing two shows. We're going to be in Colorado. We're going to be on the East Coast. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to putting the band back together. I, I love making music with you guys. And we need to and, and we got some, some time to make a new record. Yeah, we got some some good songs that need uh need to see the light of day so i agree um it'll happen all right brother thank you so much for having me love you homie i will talk to you soon you too buddy talk to you man ciao